Well, thank you, men. Of course, we're not in Daniel 3 yet, so in about six weeks, you have to sing it again. <laughs> but uh, that was well done. Very, very nice. Thank you for that. In my pocket, I have two pages of verses written out. And I said, if you wanted to do that, that's an option. Two people took me up on it, so now I've got that. As evidence that our list is growing. And so, I'm going to ask you today if you're going to join our list in helping us get a better understanding of the book of Daniel. If you have read Daniel in this last week, I need to see a hand. One, two, did you? No? I saw a hand go, no, that's not. Two, I'm looking out there. Three, uh, am I missing somebody? Is there anybody out there? Wave at me if I missed you. Yeah, three more. Okay, that's 64. That means 11 more people. We need 75. Okay, 64. Good job, good job. Okay, one word. Give us one word for each chapter to summarize the chapter. Just one word will do. And if you have a list like that, we'd love to hear it this morning. Anybody with a list? We have one. Okay. Excellent job. Thank you so much. Oh, that's great. You know what's handy? When you're reading through it, do your chapters at the same time. Just a thought. All right, somebody else with a list. Any other lists out there? I'm not missing somebody. Thank you. Thank you very much. That gives us 14 now that have done the list. That means we've got... 61 to go. Okay, memorizing five verses. I've got two in my pocket here. Anybody else? Nobody else has verses today. Okay, we're up to 20 on that one, so that means we've got some work to do. Okay, if you want to memorize five verses, that's all we're asking. Five verses from the book of Daniel. Pick any ones you want. Uh, we'd love to hear them. It's a good exercise. All of that is not just because I'm a teacher and I love to give homework, but uh, the very fact that uh, uh, we need to spend more time in this book than just Sunday morning. And uh, so I've come up with a few ideas that you might be able to interact with it during the week and, and learn, read it, uh, um, memorize some of it. That'd be super. Because we have so much to look at in this book. And uh, our time gets away very quickly. We don't have a whole lot of time here this morning. And boy, do I have notes. Woo, we're going to be busy. Okay, so you got to turn to Daniel chapter 2 with me. I'm going to move over here because I've got some, uh, something up there I'm going to show too. I'll turn that on in case you need that, Evan. Evan is my clicker too. He helps me uh, 
turn the slides as we go to them. So I'm going to do it this way this morning. Let's have a word of prayer, and we'll get started in Daniel chapter 2. In case you're the one who's got a tablet in front of you and waiting for me to say which verse, uh, verse number 29 is a good place to start. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. What a privilege it is to have a copy of it, to own it, to read it with our own eyes. And you give us understanding. You help us to grasp and digest the passage. And you also bring out the application. So we submit to you at this time as we get into your word and ask you to be our teacher or guide. Give us encouragement. Give us instruction. Give us correction, too, if that's your desire. But whatever it is, we know that it's going to be for our good and your glory. So we give this time to you now and thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, the word is uncompromising. That's our text uh, title for this study all the way through Daniel. It's a resolution to follow and, and obey God regardless of the consequences of living in a pagan world. The pagan world is not going to change. Your commitment to following and obeying God is what we're learning here in Daniel, uh, the entire book. I put it in the three words, trust God regardless. Very important terms we're learning as we go. We are in the prophecy section, and it's very significant as we are working through prophecy that we do this carefully. Uh, People like to speak from the passages. I know dispensational speakers especially like to focus on Daniel's outlines to, to show how God is working. And I intend to do some of that with you today. We're actually getting to the interpretation today. I've been teasing you with that for about four weeks now. And now we're going to finally start to talk about what the interpretation is. Now I've got an outline for you. I want to pop up here. Uh, so you get a, a big view, first of all. This is part of the book. Uh, chapter 1, a look at the prophet. Chapter 2, a look at the Gentile nations. All the way through chapter 7. So we're only in 2, Nebuchadnezzar's dream. There's Nebuchadnezzar's image, Nebuchadnezzar's vision. We have those chapters. Belshazzar's feast in chapter 5. Darius' decree. This is 70 years, these first five chapters. And then this is Darius, the Medes and the Persians, in chapter 6. And Daniel's vision starts in chapter 7. Let's pop the next one up. 8 through 12 is a look at Israel's future. And you've got several visions here, 1, 2, and 3, each of them. Chapter 8, chapter 9, that's a big one. Chapter 10 through 12 is the last vision uh, in that set. You've got several visions here in 10, 11, and 12. One for the nations and the last one for Israel. Now, I want to show you something with this outline that will help you understand. Everything in red that pops up on this side, the first seven chapters, and on the next slide, that's all prophecy. Half the book, or more, is prophecy. Uh, they like to separate the books, like chapter 1 through 7 is about Daniel, or chapter 1 through 6, some say, is about Daniel, the prophet, and chapter 7 through 12 is about the prophecy. Uh, but as you can see, even chapter 2 is a prophecy section. That's where we're at. 7, 8, 9, you start to see prophecies all over the page. <laughs> and that's what most people get really, really excited about, uh, is that we're going to start dealing with prophecy. 
and let's understand prophecy. And I want to be very clear about something as we begin when we talk prophecy. Number one, all of these visions were given to Daniel. And you may say, well, what's that? Understand it from his sandals first, please. All right? Too, too many times we go into it with our own preconceived set of ideas and opinions and interpretations, and we just kind of dump it on the passage, and if it doesn't fit, we'll just wiggle it enough till it does. Um, understand, we're going to stand in his sandals and look at it like he did. Okay? That's first thing. Second thing is that the visions and the prophecies are in reference to Israel and the nations that have relation with Israel. It's not about the church. Did you hear? It's not about the church. I don't know how many times they do this, but uh, you cannot teach the rapture from the book of Daniel. And yet there are those who will a lot. The prophecy conferences go to Daniel. Let's talk about the rapture today. It's like, you can't do that from the book of Daniel. It doesn't talk about the church, and it doesn't talk about the rapture. You're going to hear me say that a few times. Okay, just so we understand the rules when we start prophecy. It's about Israel and about what God has in store for Israel. Does it include Gentile nations? Yes. Yes, it does. But it's all about what God is going to do with those people. And so for Daniel, it was a matter of faith, trust God regardless. Even down to the last words, God says, okay, Daniel, that's all you get. Now relax, go your way. He didn't say relax, but I paraphrased. Take it easy, Daniel. I've got it. It's under control. You can rest now, and I will make sure all this comes about. You're going to see that's what Daniel had to learn too. Trust God regardless. And so this world is going to be ruled by heathen people. I don't know if you know that. It's going to be ruled by heathen people. And, and we can find application in all this too. When we walk through it, we're going to find some, but we're going to be very careful to say the visions are not aimed at the church, and they're not about the rapture. But the visions are about the failure of the kingdoms of this world to endure. Did you hear it? The visions are about the failure of the kingdoms of this world to endure. And the fact is that the kingdom of our Messiah will overcome them all. That's what we're going to see. So as we walk through this passage, we're not looking at it from the, the seats of the church bus. We're putting on Jewish lenses, okay? So we can follow through and understand the plan that God has for his own people, the chosen seed of Abraham, Israel to be specific. And I'm going to use these PowerPoints to reinforce what we are reading so you can get a visual too as we walk through this and go even a little bit further as we work through the chapters. But today, back to Daniel chapter 2 and the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Finally, the interpretation. So you ready? Good. Okay. Verse number 29. As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turned to what would happen in the future. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will happen. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me by any wisdom that is in me more than any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. Daniel, 
uh, out, no, you, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great image. That image, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was rising up in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of the image was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thigh of bronze, the legs of iron, its feet partially of iron and part of clay. You continued looking into a stone, was cut out without hands. It struck the image of the feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone was struck, that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was a dream. Now we will say its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men inhabit, or the beast of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has made you rule with power over them all. You are the head of gold. But after you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you, then a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule with power over all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. Now, in that you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay, partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom. But it will have in it the toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. And as the toes of the feet were partially of iron and partly of clay, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, um, did I just say that? No. They will combine with one another in the seeds of men, but they will not cling to one another, even as iron does not combine with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will cause a kingdom to rise up, which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put to the end all of these kingdoms, but it itself will stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw the stone cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will happen in the future, so the dream is certain, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Wow! Think of that for the moment he gave that interpretation. Nobody else did that. Matter of fact, Nebuchadnezzar didn't think anyone really could. And he was angry about that. He thought somebody should have the answer. And Daniel brought it before him and said, the Lord said this. He didn't get any clues, except God told him what it was. So we have our statue before us here. And you see the image set up in this uh, graphic here. In its description, a head of gold, the, uh, the chest, the arms of silver, the belly and the thigh of a bronze, the legs of iron, and down at the very bottom you got toes and feet that are partly clay and partly iron. It was large and extraordinarily splendorous. It was an amazing sight. It was awesome to see. And... Uh, this vision, as I shared with you last week, was unique in that it had no sound. There was no interpretation going on. It's just as he was sleeping, he saw this huge statue or something like that. And he was impressed with it, but there was no commentary. 
You could get the same picture if you try watching a PBS show today and turn the sound off. And then you just see visions of whatever they're trying to tell you. And you might have no idea what they're talking about. But that's what he had. A vision, a dream, with no description, no explanation, nothing. Just a large, impressive statue. And it had to have been important. As we already know, he's going to make a statue in the next chapter. <laughs> but what he did not understand was what we see in the next slide. There was a stone mentioned in verse number 34. Daniel says, this is what was in your dream. You were looking and there was a stone just suddenly cut out. Cut out of a mountain, cut out of a quarry. We're not exactly sure, but it was cut out. No hands did it. And suddenly this stone, no size given, but it was shown to be something shocking in his dream because as magnificent as what that statue was, this stone crushed it. We'll take the next one now. I like this picture. It crushed it at the feet. His most vulnerable position. It crushed it, and it crushed, as it says, the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold. They were all crushed at the same time. They became like chaff, dust on the floor. And the wind picked it up and carried it away. It struck it, and it destroyed it all at the same time. It didn't reserve any part of it for itself. We're going to find some interesting things about this. But the stone crushed it all. There was nothing, nothing, nothing left when the wind blew it away. I reminded us of this when I spoke last time. The wicked think that they're permanent. They get on with their ways in, in this world with their strength and with their wealth and even with their political power at times. They think they're going to endure forever. They're going to hold their seat forever. They're going to be just everything forever and ever. At least they act like they're going to be that way. And some think that they're going to be that way. But God says the wicked are not so, but they're like chaff, which the wind will blow away. There is an end to it all. And that's what this picture showed us, too. The stone came out and crushed it. And there was something even more magnificent about that stone. And in our next slide, we see the stone becomes a mountain. Matter of fact, so big, it covers the whole earth. And I didn't put it over the earth, because then you wouldn't see the earth, would you? But uh, the stone kept growing and growing. And that is a very unnatural stone. Stones don't grow. Stones fall apart. They get brittle, pieces come off, they turn to powder and dust and all that. But however, when do we ever hear of stones growing, getting bigger and bigger and bigger? This one does. And so we mark that and we say, well, that's an extraordinary stone. So an impressive statue, an extraordinary, unusual stone. And Daniel says, that was your dream. You don't know what it means, but that was your dream, Nebuchadnezzar. You know, those wise men couldn't in a million years have come up with that. Even if they took wild guesses, they would have never found a dream that matched this. So Daniel starts in verse 36. That was your dream. Now we will say its interpretation before the king. You ready? This is where it gets fun. Okay, he starts to describe the meaning of the statue in verse 36 through 43. So we'll pop our statue back up here again. There are four kingdoms. He did say that specifically. 
These are kingdoms, and there's four of them. Uh, they're all parts of the statue. There's kingdom one in verse 37 and 38. There's kingdom number two in verse 39. Kingdom number three is also in verse 39. Kingdom four is in verse 40 to 43. Now, outside of the information given for kingdom number one, which we're going to see today in verse 37 and 38, the rest of these are unnamed. They do not have a title. The best way to understand them, not only as Daniel would have explained them to their parts, not enough information in some cases, <laughs> but uh, certainly no names for what that kingdom is going to be, it's because we stand here today and look back that we could say, oh, I know who that is, and we can start putting tags on there. Daniel did not have that luxury. He could not put tags next to these slides. We can, and so, just so it's fair, Daniel said there are four kingdoms. And we're going to start just like he did. There are four kingdoms. The fourth kingdom is going to be a divided kingdom as well. Now, he starts to describe them in descending order from top down to the bottom. Both in the vision and even in the nature of the kingdoms, they decrease in their quality. They decrease. They increase in strength, but they decrease in quality as we go. It's very interesting. So let's talk about kingdom number one, verse 37 through 38. This is, we easily name, Babylon. I'll show you why. Verse number 36. This was a dream. Now we say its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdoms, the power, the strength, and the glory, and whatever the sons of men inhabit, of the beast or the beast of the field or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand. He has made you rule with power over them all. You are the head of gold. This kingdom belongs to Nebuchadnezzar. He was the king of Babylon. That we could do without any hesitation. He was the king of Babylon. And what's interesting about his kingdom, he says, you, O king, are the king of kings. You are the head of gold. So I give you the head. You are the king of kings. You are powerful. You have subdued all the other nations around you in warfare. Matter of fact, he's also has control of the beast of the fields and the birds of the sky. Try that for the afternoon test to see how powerful you are. Control the birds of the sky. I don't know how that fits. It's just a pretty impressive uh, description of the power of Nebuchadnezzar. The birds of the sky, the beast of the field, wherever man lives, you are king. You are king. This power is given to him. I want to underscore this. It's given to him. Verse 37. It's given to him. God gave them into your hands. He made you rule with power over them all. He made you the ruler. God is in charge of this one. Nebuchadnezzar, I know he gets upset when people walk in and mess with his pride. 
We're going to see that on a few occasions. He gets pretty violent about that. Here's Daniel standing in front of him. Think of this, 16-year-old, so to speak, captive, Jewish, all that stuff. And he's saying, God gave you that kingdom. <laughs> well, I bet that went over well. But nevertheless, it's true. He wouldn't have had that kingdom if God had not given it to him. He couldn't take credit for that kingdom and say, look what I have done. You want proof of that? Read chapter 4. <laughs> when he tried to take credit for it, boy, did God put him in his place. But that's how God deals with pride. Also note, before you even, we walk through this slide a little bit, also note that the material of the head is gold. And as far as man is concerned, what's greater than that? Gold. Wow, there's nothing higher. And a head, there's nothing higher than the head, right? That's the way we think in our, in our understanding from man's perspective. Babylon reached the pinnacle of power. Babylon reached the pinnacle of glory. Babylon was it as far as man was concerned. I think it's funny because we put gold as such a high, high thing on our list that God uses it to pave the streets of the New Jerusalem. Quite a contrast, huh? You're just going to walk on it like it's dirt, like it's stone, like it's a, a paved street. God uses gold. And by the way, ultimately, it's Christ who will be the head. This is from man's view that they see these things. And I just want to remind you, you're standing in Daniel's sandals and looking at this with him as he interprets his dream. Babylon looks to be the top of the heap. Babylon is a very old nation. Very old nation. We go back in time, somewhere back to 3200 BC. I'm, I'm of the persuasion, and I know you could disagree with me, and that's okay. When we get to heaven, I'll say, see, I told you so. But uh, uh, I think that we live in a world that was created about 4004 BC. Usher said so, anyway. But uh, it's a young earth, and it's quite possible. If we just go with the chronology of the Bible, that's what it says. Now, whether you agree with that or not, but 4004 BC, and we find Babylon in existence at 3200 BC. That's not many years after the creation of the world. We already see this kingdom being established. It was uh, an old kingdom prior to the days of Abraham. Now, Abraham was born and raised in the vicinity of Babylon. We know he was from Ur of the Chaldeas, and that is Babylonian suburb, if you will. That's where uh, Abraham was born. That's where he lived a lot of his life. And the Babylonians were idolatrous people. Genesis points that out, too. Even the name of their city, their, their uh, capital city back then, meant the gate of God. And now they probably weren't thinking you're God. They were thinking they're God. It had strong kings over time. It had weak kings over time. Like many nations, it rises and it falls, up a little, down a little bit. For nearly 2,600 years, we trace its history through many, many years of that. And its biggest rival turns out to be a nation called Assyria. Assyria just a little bit to the north and a little bit to the west of Babylon. Conquered, conquered, conquered. 
They were strong, a big chunk of the Old Testament. The Assyrians are the ones in charge. Matter of fact, it was Assyria that conquered Israel, the northern kingdom, in 722 BC. Assyria was the powerhouse of their day, and they even threatened Hezekiah in the kingdom of Judah. Now, putting that all in perspective, you're right there around uh, 700 to 600 BC, and that's where most of your Old Testament comes into play as far as kings are concerned and rise and fall of kings. And what you see is very interesting because while Assyria is gaining its power and coming against them and people like Jonah are being sent to proclaim messages against them of judgment, God is building up this little kingdom of Babylon to be their greatest foe. And Babylon is gaining strength, sometimes not very noticeable, but they're coming on. And by the time you get to 612 to 609 BC, Babylon is attacking Israel, not defending themselves, but going at them. And Nebuchadnezzar's family decided, we have had enough. And his father took it into his hands to fight against the Assyrians. His name was Nabopolazar. Palazar, I think is how you'd say it. But he decided it's time. We're going to break the shackles of Assyria forever. And he was successful by the time 609 came about. He had done that. And he went on and started to fight. Beyond the Assyrians, he starts down toward Egypt because that was the second guy on the ranking list. And he says, I'm going to take out Egypt too. Israel's right in the middle of them. <laughs> and here it comes. Babylon, Babylon's coming down through. There's poor Judah sitting there. And they were subjugated to Judah. This is Nebuchadnezzar coming to town. 605 BC, we start to see Nebuchadnezzar. He starts to rule in 604. In 605, he was up here fighting. And he was helping to accomplish that. He took out Judah in his first of three visits. But in 604 is when Nebuchadnezzar became king. We are reading right here of Nebuchadnezzar in his second year. As we're reading this passage in uh, Dan, the book of Daniel, it's his second year. So here is Nebuchadnezzar conquering Judah 605, capturing Daniel in 605, taking him to and those other young men off to Babylon and training them to be Babylonian. That's when the dream came. So put it in historical setting. That's when the dream came. And notice, he's only two years into this kingdom, and God says, you're the king of kings. You're the most powerful this world has ever seen, and everyone's subjugated to you. That's impressive within two years. That's the power of the Babylonian Empire. That was impressive. But that kingdom did not last forever. We have here Belshazzar in chapter 5. This is almost 70 years later. The kingdom fell off to the Medes and the Persians in 539. The glory days were primarily during those 70 years of captivity where Daniel was there, and, but Israel endured. Israel will endure. But this is uh, the fact that kingdoms do not last forever. As great as that kingdom was, it was not going to last forever. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom fell to very poor leadership. Now, we won't go into that until the chapters allow us to say so. But in chapter number five, that kingdom will fall to the Medes and the Persians in a, in a terrible battle there. Uh, but their glory days will be gone. Now, I find this very interesting. The head of gold, that's Babylon. 
That's part of the whole statue. The statue's not complete without the head. You gotta have the head on it. And that's part of the statue. What I find very interesting is in all the kingdoms that follow, the characteristics of that head tend to linger within all those kingdoms too. It's very interesting, but the Babylonian characteristic that is especially is prominent is pride. And don't be surprised, because scripture says this, but in the end times yet to come, that the Antichrist sets up a kingdom, and guess what he calls it? Babylon. He calls it Babylon, and it's all about pride. That is not going away. The, the, each part of the statue will carry the same, same characteristics, the DNA of the head. You're going to see that as we go through. But it's rather interesting because God is opposed to the proud. He's opposed to the proud. Every piece of this statue he's opposed to. That's why it gets crushed in the end. But Daniel is going to make some remarks about the greatness of our God. He already has when he said that God is the one who changes times. God is the one who sets up seasons. God is the one who removes kings. God is the one who establishes kings. That was in chapter 2, verse 21. This sovereign control of God is what you're seeing and understanding in this picture. Kings and kingdoms are still in operation today. We still have kings and kingdoms, so to speak, in our land. But from our view, <laughs> things are not always like we like them, right? If we're honest, we don't like all these things we see in our world around us. And I think that might be an understatement. But there's a reality here. Underscore this. No nation on earth at any time, is going to last forever, except God's kingdom. Every one of them will be crushed in one way or the other. Our existence as a nation, too, is dependent upon God's grace and God's mercy. That he has not done something about us at this point is an amazing thing, I think. But even Thomas Jefferson said this way, way back. I tremble for my country and reflect that God is just and his justice cannot sleep forever. I don't say that because I'm down on the country we live in, but it's just a reminder that God establishes kingdoms. God removes kings and kingdoms. I will not diminish my view of his authority. That's what scripture is pointing out all the way through here. Regardless of the threat of man, regardless of their pompous words, regardless of their actions that they make for themselves to look like they're great and they're powerful and they're undefeatable and they will last forever, God's in charge of kingdoms. God is in charge of the kingdoms. We should pray for our country. We should pray for our leaders. We should pray that uh, all these things go well, but we should pray to the God who's in charge. Because that's what the whole focus is coming back to. Uh, the God who put him there can take him away. Here's a message, just a simple thought that James wrote in chapter 1. The book of James, verse 16 and 17 in chapter 1. And I think it's a, a message to heed. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights 
in whom there is no variation or shifting shadows. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. The exercise of his will. Humility is something that God loves to see. God loves humility. It goes with faith. And when we start to think that we're the center of the universe, it does us good to read these passages. To remind us, again, it is God who establishes. It's God who removes. In him we live and move and have our being. Just want to remind you of that because our study in Daniel is not to make us better at trivia questions. <laughs> it's not to help us be experts on eschatology. But it's to remind us we need to trust God regardless. We need to. We only touched one kingdom today. Isn't that great? We're going to have to put your song off again another two or three weeks because we've still got kingdom two, three, and four to go through as well before we ever get to the fiery furnace. But uh, that's okay. We've got another kingdom to talk about next week. I just wanted to bring the reminder of before you, even in our day and age, folks, let's trust God regardless. Regardless. He is our Lord. We serve him. Our world desperately needs to see people who are uncompromising to the things of God. You can be that person. You may not be out on the world stage somewhere, but there are people around you. They are seeing you. They're learning from you. They work with you. They're family members with you. They're neighbors with you. There are people who are watching you. You can stand firm in your faith, trusting a God who's in control. I want to encourage you that way. I want to remind you of that so that we do not become pompous and think that somehow we made ourselves. <laughs> he made us. Praise his name. He's so good to us. He's so good to us. Heavenly Father, we bow before you today and just give you the glory for what you've done. As we start to learn what these pieces are in the statue and understand them from your perspective, help us to grasp really our relationship with you too. Let us see ourselves in, in your light, to see our dependence upon you in every single thing, that we might grow, that we might trust, that we might even be firm in our faith, uncompromising in the day before us. Teach, us. teach us, Lord, to be more like Daniel, we pray. And I thank you for the work you're doing in our midst. You know, Lord, that we're praying for folks in our church who are struggling. Uh, pray for Jeff today as he's recovering, and Julie Sloan as she's recovering, and pray for Mike Olson as he's uh, dealing with cancer, and... Um, Joy as she's heading in for surgery, and, and the others on our list. JC's not on our list, but we pray for him today as he's not feeling well either. Uh, thank you, Lord, for what you're going to do there too. We give you the glory for it all in Jesus' name. Amen.